Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Now, as we know, this president was urged not to go to Kenosha today. Why? We know why. The place is fragile. And obviously... Anybody wanting it to be better would know what to do, right? We all do. You go to a place with a problem like that, you acknowledge the problem. You give keep people confidence. How? You say, look, I hear you. I understand your pain. I understand that you're hurt. I will make things better. I have the power and I have the will and you have my promise. We need to be better than somewhat of what is happening in these streets. You can't have violence You can't go backwards and think that that's going to get you progress. We come together. We'll get to a better place together. Common sense, right? You do it in your life. I do it in mine all the time. Trump did none of that. He actually went to a place that is broken by division and increased the divide. And I submit to you, he did it on purpose. He blamed the people fighting for justice and said the problem is what they're doing, not what has been done to them in communities all over our country, by police, by lenders, by employers, by courts. Instead, Trump said this systemic inequality of which you speak, it does not exist. I don't believe that. I think the police do an incredible job. And I think you do have some bad apples. They call it choking, and it happens. Do you believe systemic racism is a problem in this country? Well, you know, you just keep getting back to the opposite subject. We should talk about the kind of violence that we've seen in Portland and here and other places. It's tremendous violence. You always get to the other side. Well, what do you think about this or that? Why, Mr. Acuity Tast Passing Genius? Why would you decide to talk about just the symptom of a problem if you want to fix a problem? We all get the obvious. Nobody is saying we should condone or be complicit in looting and rioting. That's crime. It's not protest. It's not progress. It's regression. And we all know it. It's beyond question. But what is all of that? It's an ugly, unacceptable outgrowth, but nonetheless a symptom. But Trump went to a tinderbox and started throwing in matches to these people. Oh, the real problem that you say? What happens to you doesn't exist. Your outrage, that's the problem. All this unrest on his watch. Think about it. We saw no chain protests like this under Obama or any other president in our lifetime. And he goes to the hot spot and makes it worse. Think about that. The only violent act that he didn't condemn is the one by his own supporter who police say took to the streets last weekend with a gun the law didn't allow him to carry and is now charged with shooting and killing two protesters. That violence, Trump defended yesterday. So why did he come if not to make things better? Looking at what he said and how he said it, you have to think 
He may have gone there to make them worse. Well, why would he do that? Because don't you think at this point he believes that this violence scares you enough that you may think you need him to fix the violence that he has had happen on his watch? He came into office promising to end it. Now it's gotten worse and he says, I'm the only one who can fix it. But if he does get it right and the fear wins him Wisconsin, that could be his path to victory. Remember, though, he laid out a vision of American carnage in his inaugural address. Remember that more than three years ago? I alone can fix it. All of this badness is happening on his watch and in part because of his failure to address why it's happening. His answer is, I'll tell you why it's happening. Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, they're not in power. The president doesn't want to make things better. We have to accept it. So the challenge becomes, how do we do it without him on the local level? Let's bring in Kenosha's mayor, a Democrat who's pushing back. John Antaramian. Antaramian. Did I get it right? Help me. You did fine. Antaramian? Beautiful. Antaramian. Um, it is good to see you. Uh, thank well, you thank for you taking for having this me time. Uh, let's deal with the top line and then go into the depth of what you need to do to heal your community. Okay? okay. How worried were you today when you heard the president blaming people for being angry at what they've seen in their streets and what they've seen happen to too many people time and again in their communities? You know, when you listen to what he had to say, I look at things from a different perspective. I look at it from the, my community, and, and I'll give the example. This weekend, I was out and about visiting the uptown, the downtown, the areas that have been hardest hit, talking with people, and there were people out there working to clean up the area. Their neighbors were there helping them clean it up. People were together trying to make sure that the, the buildings were painted. They've, we had murals being done. People were talking to each other. And people were working together. I think that's the image of Kenosha that I want people to have. And I know that you know the president has his own view of things, but I'm more interested in what my community is going to do to solve our problems and to become a better place. Are you worried that what he said today may foment the problems there? I always worry about things firing up any base out there. I, I don't believe, though, Kenosha is going to have that problem. I believe in my community. And I believe the people in our community are going to work together to solve part of our problems. And we have problems. I, I wish I could say that, you know, everything was perfect. It's not. Uh, we need to deal with the issues of racism. We need to deal with other issues of how we're doing things. And so I think that what you'll find is Kenosha is going to come back and come back stronger than ever. Well, I don't suggest that if you want the violence in the streets to end, you say there is no such thing as systemic racism the way the president uh, did today. But what is the answer? What do you say to the people in the streets about what is driving them to desperation? The looters, the criminals, look, they've made a choice to become what they oppose, which is injustice. But what do you say to those who are desperate and not sure, especially after today, that there's any real chance of positive change? Well, I, th I think when you look at this, you have to look at it from number one, as you mentioned, the looters and the rioters, those individuals aren't Kenosha. And many, most of them didn't come, don't live in Kenosha, but came from the outside. So if we put those folks aside, what do we need to do in our community? And I, my father had an, an old saying that um, everybody talks, 
but no one listens. And that is the, the trick, I believe, or the real way of us solving our problems. We need to start listening to each other. We need to spend time talking to people and then listening to what they're telling us. What are the problems they're facing? How are those problems impacting them? I spent the day, this uh, good part of my day today, uh, meeting with the clergy. Uh, brought in a, a gentleman from the Department of Justice uh, in the community actions area to talk with him, to have him help us start the process of listening. And I think that to me is going to be the key uh, to how we resolve our issues in Kenosha and how we move forward. How much of it is about uh, training and culture within the police? Like literally how they do the job. I don't subscribe to this black heart theory uh, that, you know, oh, you just have racism within the police and that's how it is. You got to get all new police. I don't subscribe to that. I think it's as much about training and contact with the community uh, as it is about anything that's in someone's head or their heart. How do you deal with that? Well, the first thing that you have to do is one of, one of the things that we are doing is we've been setting up committees and we're going to use the Department of Justice and the clergy to help us with the listening sessions. And then I have a, com a group of committees that are being created. One of them will be dealing with police communication and operations. You've got and locals so on the will, committee? Oh, it'll all be locals. Great. Um, so it'll be, it'll be a, a large group of individuals in the sense of, when I say large group, a diverse group. So it's not going to be just, you know, the, the normal folks who are involved in the police and fire. Commission. Right. You got to let it the communities the, the, feel like they have equity in how they're being policed, that these people work for them. And you're absolutely correct. And that's what we're trying to do. So part of these committees are going to be used to sit down. The police chief will be involved. Uh, police officers will be involved. The community will be involved. And we are going to review the things that we're doing. And if it comes out that we are not doing enough training, then we need to look at what kind of training needs to be done and how do we then implement the new training. But don't you know you need happen. more training? I mean, when you watch this video of what happened with Jacob, um, they couldn't think of a better way to keep this guy on the ground with multiple officers. They couldn't find another way other than following him as he walked around a car. You know, obviously, I, I learned a beautiful lesson today from a longtime law enforcement officer. He said, Cuomo, you jump too fast to the interaction. It's how you de-escalate. That's where the training is. There are so many ways to get people uh, to be more cooperative with what's happening before any force is needed. But then once it is needed, these officers need to know how to handle situations without using a taser or a gun. Don't you agree? I do, I do agree. I, and, I, and I believe, as I said, though, I look at training and I'm doing it fairly broad because as we're, as we're having a discussion, I'm trying to get across the point that we're working as a group and as a committee and they're going to look at everything. And as they do, they'll pinpoint what areas that we think we need to modify, where we need to, types of training. And then the other uh, piece of this is that there may be certain things that need to be changed from a state level, not just the local level. Uh, because a lot of the training comes from the state. And so we're going to be looking at all those aspects of what is going on so that we improve on what we do and how we do it. We need to make sure people feel safe. We need to make sure that police and the community are working together because only on that is the community going to be safe and prosper. Are you going to allow on the table in terms of ideas, um, the idea of getting them out of the cruisers, getting cops back on the beat, talking to people on their own terms? Actually, we do a fair amount of that now in Kenosha. I have a, a couple of beat patrols that are in the up and downtown areas. 
And the goal is for the officers to, to meet and talk to people. We also tie it into some of our educational programs in the sense of summer uh, programs in the parks so that officers and young people st interact. Same within the school district. Right. So we are doing those things already. Actually, though, since you brought it up, if you don't mind me kind of slipping into something that I think is important to, at least important to me, one of the key issues, I believe, in fixing our whole system is as we set up these committees, you know, we have education, we have uh, the police department, we have employment, all those things that we're talking about in general. But I still think the key one is dealing with the youth. And I think that is one of the most important things that we can do. We have too many young black men who we're losing and we're losing them because they don't see worth, that they have self-worth. And that is our problem that we need to start addressing. So we need to start making sure that we have programs in place to help these young people to attain the, their goals mm -hmm. and to make it so that they're the next police officer or they're the next firefighter, they're the next mayor, whatever it is that they wish to do. They have to feel the confidence they can do it. And we need to find ways of changing how we're doing things to make that occur. More so avenues youth, to dignity, less dead ends that leave them with bad I, choices. Well, Mayor John uh, Antaramian, you've got a tough task. You've got a national spotlight on you. Uh, you had a big episode today with the most powerful man in the world, all coming down on your community. Doesn't make anything any easier, unfortunately, uh, but it doesn't make it any less important either. We will stay watching, and we are here for you as a platform to make your case about what's working and not working in your community. Well, thank you very much, and I will tell you, Kenosha is a community that will succeed, and we will move forward and we will be better for it. Well, I hope so. We need better in this country on a lot of levels. Take care, sir. God bless going forward. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Now, look, I say it's an argument, but I, I really see it as more of a matter of fact, to be honest. If the president really does want to protect people, if he's about law and order, why doesn't he quit doing this? If you feel more comfortable, you'll say a couple of words. You might want to take the masks off. Otherwise, you can leave them on either way you want. Look how fast you took that off. Why? What is it with him and masks? Who has told him anything but we really need them? Oh, no, they said they weren't sure. That was months ago. People used to think the earth was flat, too. Why did he politicize this? Why does he give people this false sense that it's strong to be stupid? There's news tonight from a panel of government health experts refuting a Trump-backed COVID therapy, therapy plan. There is no shortcut. Even plasma treatments. I was getting ready to do a story for you about how to donate plasma because I have the antibodies, thank God, so far with Sanjay. But now maybe we got to rethink it. The treatments may not be safe or helpful for certain coronavirus patients. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to go through what we know about that and long haul syndrome. It's got to get into our vocabulary because it's part of our reality. Next. Today, a panel convened by the National Institutes of Health said there is no evidence support using convalescent plasma to treat coronavirus patients. Yes, this is the same treatment that the president touted as historic when the FDA approved an emergency youth use authorization for it just last week. So the NIH panel says no. The FDA says yes. 
So where does that leave us? Let's bring in Chief Doctor Sanjay Gupta, especially seeing how I was about to go down the road of the double needle in each arm where they take out your blood, spin it, take the plasma out and put the red blood cells back in the other arm, which would have been a major exercise in fainting for me. Um, so what is your feeling about uh, where we are with plasma? Well, th this is disappointing a little bit, Chris, because uh, if, just two things. First of all, the way that this all unfolded, on a Sunday, you remember, that's when the emergency use authorization was granted. But if you, if you go back in time to the Thursday before, the NIH already showed their cards beforehand. Dr. Collins, who's head of the NIH, and Dr. Fauci came out and said, look, the data isn't there. And then Sunday, it happens anyways, the authorization is granted. And then on Monday, you know, Dr. Hahn, Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner, sort of, he says, look, I exaggerated the data a bit, but the authorization still stands. So, th th I mean, this, this obviously is, what this sort of thing happens, it erodes trust, it's a real problem. The, the, the issue is this, Chris, there's a lot of enthusiasm around convalescent plasma. You know, it's been used for other types of infections. Now that this authorization is out there, if you're in the hospital and you're sick and there's this authorization, what are you going to say? You're going to say, I, I, I would like the, the plasma. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll work. Understandably, if you're a patient, but it makes it nearly impossible then now to collect the data that you need to show that it works. The only data they had actually uh, sort of compared low-dose plasma to high-dose plasma. What was missing from that group is no plasma at all. That's how you actually- So you don't see this working. as a hydroxychloroquine so, situation where it could be dangerous. You see this as something else. Well, it, there is a possibility it could be dangerous still. Because we, we, we just don't have a comparison group to placebo. So it, it, you know, when you're giving antibodies, I think there's, there's two things to keep in mind. One is that the antibodies themselves, you're just taking antibodies. Some may be great gold standard antibodies you know, that are really neutralizing the virus. Many of them may not really do anything at all, but some could actually cause a reaction in the recipient as well, and that could pot potentially be harmful. Hmm. Again, that's why you do studies. And you know, an authorization can be granted with limited studies, but you have to do the right studies. An authorization is granted in the case of an emergency when there is no other alternative out there and you're up against the ropes. Right. So you, you, you'd like to authorize these things in a situation like this, but there just was no good data behind this and it might be hard to collect that data now. All right, so now in terms of what we know works and where we are with that, rapid testing. Uh, there's word from the government that in yeah. September they're going to start sending it out all around the country. What do you know about scale in terms of, first of all, how real is this promise and how uh, much of an impact will this level of distribution have? This is a brighter spot, I think, Chris. It's not, it's not a panacea by any means, but it's a brighter spot. So this Abbott test that we're talking about, Binax now it's called, uh, they're able to, to make scale-wise about 12 million tests a week roughly 50 million tests a month. It's, it's not enough to satisfy the demands overall, but this is, this is significant. Uh, there was just very early data in terms of how accurate this test is. And what they found is that when it was tested in symptomatic people, within seven days of developing symptoms, it had 95 plus percent sensitivity, meaning it caught 95 out of 100 cases and in five, five times out of 100, it would tell someone that they were negative when in fact they were not. That's pretty good. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. I think, I think the big question is going to be how well does it work in people who are asymptomatic, this idea of assurance testing. I'm coming to visit you in New York. I'd like to know for certain I don't have the virus before I come into your house. Is it possible to get that kind of assurance from this test? We don't know how well it works in that, in that situation. 
And again, the scale. Uh, the government says they're going to buy 150 million of these tests. They cost five bucks a piece. That's 750 million dollars. They're going to have that by November 1st. They say they're going to go primarily to to uh, hot zones in the United States and nursing homes and places like Couldn't that. Could they have done this five but, months you know, ago? I got through. Yeah, well, see, this, this is, this is there's, there's two issues here. One is, and again, you've raised this from the beginning, it, the, the idea that the testing has been minimized, I think it, it's not necessarily easy to create a test like this, but I think had there been a, a more of a focus on it, they could have had a great antigen test earlier than they have it now. Also, going back to scale, you know, we keep ta talking about the DPA, the Defense Production Act, this would be one of those situations where you say, okay, we got a test that looks promising. Data looks good. Uh, there's not enough of them. Let's invoke some, uh, some extra manufacturing capacity to really beef it up. Chris, I got three kids staying home from school, mm -hmm. right? Because they, Me too. You know, we don't have enough testing. I'm not confident. You too. This is one of the ways a lot of parents out there call me about this. This is one of the ways you can help get kids back to school. I don't want to sound Pollyannish about this, but I would love to know if my kid has the virus and if right. the kids around them and the faculty and the teachers around them have the virus too. We can't say that for sure as things stand right now. If most we places. had done the testing months ago the way it could have been done, we wouldn't have the problem with schools now. We'd still have the problem with space. We'd still have friction with the teachers and understandably so. Uh, but we'd have a way of monitoring that would have gotten a lot more kids in a lot better situation than right now. And who knows how much time we're going to lose. All right. So here's the tough topic. You want the good news or the bad news? Uh, Chris, I've been thinking about you. Give me the good news first. Here's the good news. I am not alone and I am one of the lucky ones. This long haul syndrome thing is real, man. I'm telling you, I had this doctor on last night who just does this kind of scientific research. I got doctors coming at me from all over the country. There are all these support groups all over the country now popping up on Facebook and elsewhere um, where people are from asymptomatic where they didn't really feel anything. And then all of a sudden they start to get these weird symptoms, uh, hypertension and weird like Lyme disease kind of feeling joint pain and you know, other things. And then they have the mild cases where they lose their sense of smell and taste like my wife, but then it comes back as bad. And now she right. smells and tastes a lot of things that are foul. First, I thought it was just me, but it turns out there are other things also that she finds to be sour in nature. And then you have guys like me where, yes, I'm better. Absolutely. Absolutely. But my baseline breathing, walk, talk, not, not 100%. My word recall, my, my thick-tonguedness, elocution, not where it needs to be. Brain fog, constant. After 7 o'clock at night, always interesting when you go on at 9, um, I'm not where I am unless I'm popping some type of nootropic or something like that that gives me a little boost of energy to focus my acuity. I haven't moved on to medicine yet. And then lastly, for me, it's random joint pains and depression. And those have been getting worse and worse. And now I haven't taken any medication. So I was just talking with my therapist today uh, and the psychiatrist about, psychiatrist Sanjay is a doctor who's also a psychologist, but has, is a medical doctor, so can prescribe medicine. And they say, look, we've been waiting for your blood levels to come back down to normal before we start messing with your body chemistry. But the emotional flatness is getting worse. Like there's less and less of my day where I feel the kind of normal enthusiasm that I do. And I may have to do something about it. And there's a lot of that out there. 
But I'm worried that this is the real story, Sanjay, that this is going to change the scale of what we have to deal with in the health system, that even once people get better, they're going to start having other stuff, stuff you're hearing about popcorn lung and these embolisms and the hypertension and the hair loss and all the stuff that they're telling you about, too. I'm hearing about it all over the country, Sanjay. I think it's the next big challenge. Yeah. Well, Chris, um, look, you're my friend, uh, and, I, and I, f- I feel badly, man. I, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're going through all this. I, uh, I know a lot of people um, listen to you, and, and you know, we tend to think of, of what's happening with this whole COVID story in binary terms. You, you either get it and survive or people die, right? And, and, and yet there are people who are caught in between. Right. They, they survived. But but, you know, they're, they're not they're not recovered by any means. And this long hauler thing is, is, is real. I mean, you know, we're, we're learning together. And I think just over the past couple of months, we've had uh, the luxury, if you'll call it that, of starting to actually look at what recovery is really like. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to keep up with this disease for so long. Now we're saying, is this a prolonged inflammation? that affects so many different organ systems in the body. Or is it a blood is it vessel deal? Yeah. Is it not your lungs, but your blood vessels? Right. Uh, this new word that we'll start hearing, one of these many, many proteins, bradykinin, that they're doing this testing on to see if it's that the virus comes in and doesn't just hit the receptors that go to smell and taste in your lung, but goes to all kinds of receptors in your body and starts screwing around with all your systems. Yeah. I mean, we think of this, this as a respiratory virus and understandably, you know, you want to put this in a box immediately, make it make sense to something you already know. And I think this, this virus, as we're learning, it really behaves like anything we've ever seen before. There are some people, as you point out, seem to be relatively what we call posse symptomatic, minimal symptoms in the beginning, and yet they have these persistent symptoms. I thought for certain when I talked to these long hauler doctors, the, the severity of symptom was going to correlate with the length of symptoms. That doesn't seem to be the no, case doesn't. either. I'm hearing it from is, all over know, the country this, this. that they had it pretty easy. Then their hair started falling out. And they keep hearing from doctors, well, you know, this is the kind of sequelae. It's one of those, you know, sometimes when we use Latin words in the law and in medicine, it's because we don't have anything better to say. It's like when somebody tells you it's idiopathic. Well, this thing you have seems to be idiopathic. Right. Oh, that sounds sophisticated. What does that mean? It means we don't know where it's coming from. Similarly, sequelae right. in Latin right. means something that follows. And you're going to hear that from doctors. Oh, my hair's falling out. Well, that's one of the sequelae of the virus. With time, it'll come back. That means they don't know why the hell your hair's falling out. And this is very scary for people. And it is coming back, but we don't know the time and we don't know how to accelerate the time. So all I'm doing is I'm covering this. I'll bring in Sanjay uh, so he can be on this listening tour. When we bring in other patients, as we get information, we'll give it to you. We are actively researching what people are figuring out. I'm not going to sell you anything. I'm not going to tell you to try anything. I may tell you what I'm trying. I'm about to start uh, some different non-toxic supplements, no prescribed medicine, nothing too crazy, at least I'll tell you about. But I'm going to try some things to build up my blood vessels on the working theory that if this attacks your blood vessels and that's why it's making us weak, maybe if I build up some of the things that builds up this stuff you guys called not nitrous oxide, but nitric oxide, you know, the gas in the body that helps blood vessel development, maybe that will be helpful. May have to take Viagra, well, one of the doctors told me. Low dose. I swear to God. He, t- he told me it's for that. Low dose. Just telling you. 
that dilates the blood vessels as well, Chris, as you, as you may know. It was <laughs> actually said, well, I know you, I knew, I, I, I was thinking about whether or not to give you that ammo on me, but I give it to you. I give it, you can have it, use it all you like. But if it helps me get better friends, in any Chris. way, I'll take it, Sanjay. I'll take yeah. anything. Hey, man, I got to say, it's just, it's good to see you smile. You know, I've been watching you a lot, and I, I, you know, you talk about that sort of blunted affect. I, if I can tell, I mean, I've noticed that a little bit, and I, and I've been worried about you a bit. So, uh, we'll keep at it, but it's, it's, it's good to see you. It's good to see you smile, buddy. Well, here's the problem: you got a little bit of a laugh cry deal working right now, right? We're dealing with a lot of hard stuff, and I'm dealing with it at work and at home because I'm sick and I'm having a hard time not being who I need to be. This show has taken a lot out of me. For me to be who I can be at my best for the show, it's going to come out of somewhere. So I'm making the, you know, make and do the best I can. I know I'm one of the lucky ones. There before the grace, I could be in one of the situations of these other people that I'm meeting and learning and bonding with. Uh, and I owe it to them to try and get us the best information I can. Who better than you? I love you, Sanjay Gupta. Thank you for helping me tonight. Love you too. All right. You got it, buddy. And we'll I talk. like the hair, by the way. Don't let anybody make you cut it. Looks good. I may need some if mine falls out. <laughs> All right. So we'll ping pong back and forth between COVID and Kenosha. Why? Because, you know, my theory, my theory is that this is what this election is about. Next 60, what, two days? 63, 62, whatever it is. Tell me in the control room. Which is it? 63, 62. Silence. Uh, whichever it is. Uh, these two issues are going to be what really forms, I think, a lot of your choices. So back to Kenosha, we have another Wisconsin official who urged the president not to come today. Very interesting. While we're focused so much on the black community in Kenosha, you know, Wisconsin as a state is overwhelmingly white, like 87%. What does that mean in this dynamic of systemic inequality in that state and how it's being received? Did you hear what happened with their legislature? When the governor convened an emergency session of the legislature to look at changes that would help address what just happened in Kenosha. Do you hear what happened? I'll tell you next. All right, so here's what we know. The president's trip to Kenosha wasn't about healing, okay? It was about heating up the situation to prove to his base that he is there to crush the people who are there committing the violence. Law and order. It's all about a campaign built on fear. Fear that you as the white voter, primarily, will think it would be worse under Joe Biden than under Trump. This is not about Trump saying, I'm good. Think about that. Trump's not telling you, see, I fixed it. Told you I alone could fix it. Told you the carnage would stop. He's saying, yeah, the carnage got worse under my watch, but it'll be even worse if it's Biden. You buy that? Well, that message is the key to what is now a desperate race to the finish, especially in Wisconsin, a state that's only elected one black man to statewide office, just in terms of, you know, a perspective on how much purchase the white fear argument could have there. That one man is Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Governor, good to see you. Hey, yeah, it's really good to see you. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you say, no, it's lieutenant governor, but I <laughs> was raised by a lieutenant governor before he was governor. And he said, lieutenant governor, always say governor. So, governor, uh, it is good to see you. Uh, let's get it's right into what you. matters here. Wisconsin is what, 87 percent white? Uh, you know, the metropolis area that we're dealing with is like 8 uh, percent black. 
What does that mean in terms of the prospect of systemic equality and the resonance of Trump's message about the problem is the people who are complaining, not their complaints? You know, I can rewind this uh, because, you know, the state of Wisconsin has a rich, proud, progressive tradition. Uh, Wisconsin, let me remind you all, uh, was the first state to declare the Fugitive Slave Act unconstitutional. And, you know, somewhere along the years, we, we sort of lost our way. We mm-hmm. find ourselves steeped in some very extreme racial disparities. Uh, but Donald Trump is going to try to his best to play to his base. His trip didn't have anything to do with the Blake family. His trip didn't have anything to do with the two people who were murdered in cold blood on the streets. It was to stoke more division and more fear uh, amongst his base, because this is not a state that he's performing particularly well in at the moment, although he won four years ago. Mm-hmm. This is trip. This trip was solely based out of, out of desperation. And it's only going to make things worse as far as tensions go. A real leader would come to this state, would come to Kenosha uh, in hopes to heal the community. But he didn't even pretend as if that was what he wanted to do in the first place. So what do you think politically? Does it work better for him in terms of winning Wisconsin to ignore the pandemic and ignore the resulting economic pain of it and focus on this fear? Hey, white people, these guys are going to come to your community next. If Biden's here, they're coming for you. You think that'll work? He's already gone the better part of the year with uh, by ignoring the pandemic. Uh, this is something he never took seriously. He never took uh, issues of racial justice seriously. And that's why we are where we are. So this is the same exact campaign strategy that he had four years ago. Uh, he just has a, a different issue to look at and point to, uh, point to and say, this is how I intend to uh, govern as if he isn't governing at this moment. He's talking about this theoretical Joe Biden America while we are currently living in Trump's America while all of this is the case right, right now. But perception so can a, be reality. It is a, a bizarre strategy. Perception can it's be a bizarre reality. Strategy. Perception yep. can be reality. And in a Marquette University Law School poll, net approval rating for mass protests following George Floyd's death, Wisconsin likely voters. June, plus 27%. August, minus 1%. That is a scary statistic if you're looking at it through the lens of does selling fear work? Do you think this could win Wisconsin for him? Well, fear is the only ammo that he has. I hate to use um, that metaphor, but fear is the only thing that he has in his pocket. And of course, you could look at those numbers, but poll numbers can't be what drives this conversation. We have to deal with the reality of what people are actually dealing with. And you could talk about likely voters all you want to, but you know, the fact is Donald Trump won Wisconsin with 6,000 fewer votes than Mitt Romney. There are so many more people, if we want to make the political argument, there's so many more people who are waiting to be inspired by some sort of, by some candidate or some sort of movement. And I, I, and I, and I'm not going to base all my decisions based on, uh, or on polling data. I'm going to do what's right as we all should be doing. And that's doing the work uh, to heal heal Kenosha. I think that voters will look quite favorably upon some of the efforts that are taking place now. I had a chance to participate in a uh, rally and a march with, uh, again, Jacob Blake's family, people from all across the area, all across the community, all spectrum uh, showed up. And they showed up with a message to demand justice. The following day, a group of creatives, young people uh, stepped up to assist the small business community uh, that hasn't just been dealing with a tough time because of uh, what happened over the previous weekend. But before that, let me uh, remind the viewers, too, that Kenosha is a blue collar town. Uh, The middle class there was built by the Chrysler plant. 
Uh, when Chrysler left, it, it also left a dent. Uh, however, Kenosha has been on the up and up. It's one of the fastest growing uh, cities in the state. And we can go back to the opportunity uh, that does or does not exist. But I think that uh, in the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake, so many folks are realizing that not everyone has access to that opportunity. And the great people of Kenosha, the kind-hearted people uh, that you come to know in the state of Wisconsin, uh, they're ready for a better future for all of us. So I, I think that you could look at those numbers right now, but I, I see that as a point in time number. You think Biden should come? So I, I do think there's uh, there's definitely room for Biden to come uh, as he's as he's talked about his need to run towards the light, uh, to to inspire people, to bring people together. That's what his campaign is, ha has been about. So uh, Joe Biden, if you listen, uh, you know, it, it would be it would be a, a welcome visit. And I said that I didn't want Donald Trump to come to Wisconsin because he failed to even uh, he, he, he failed to decry what happened. Uh, with the shooting, with a young man who traveled across state lines to murder two people in our state and injure, uh, severely injure another uh, with, a, with a long rifle. He shouldn't have had the weapon in the first place. He was out past curfew, everything. And, and Donald Trump refuses to condemn that act. And that shows that this is a president who's not ready to be president, although he's been president for three and a half years. Joe Biden has delivered a clear message, and his, his message is about hope opportunity and rebuilding uh, Kenosha, rebuilding the state of Wisconsin, and doing the same thing across the country, because this isn't an isolated incident. This isn't something that uh, is just unique to Kenosha, Wisconsin. This is an ongoing problem that we've had to deal with. Mm. And Joe Biden has, uh, he's addressed racial injustice in America. And I think that uh, the more we push, the more we fight, and the more we work, uh, the more likely we are to realize that future where racial justice is at the forefront of conversations. Well, right now you're at a starting point where uh, the kid who was the Trump supporter who did the shooting and the killing, allegedly, uh, is the only violent act that he defended uh, this president in terms of being something that on some level was uh, acceptable. We still have to know why the police in Kenosha were being as buddy-buddy uh, with those white militants uh, as they were. That is there. the real question. Yeah. Lieutenant That's Governor Mandela Barnes, hopefully we get the answer. We'll keep asking. And hopefully we get answers. But thank you for joining us tonight. And good luck for better going forward. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. Our next guest sums up the president's disinformation campaign perfectly. Quote, Trump has required the creation of a new species of presidential fact check in which you have to drag in some unsuspecting entity to correct him. The Boy Scouts the Babe Ruth Museum, Portland Fire and Rescue, the government of Sweden. That tweet is from CNN's fact check king, Daniel Dale, and he joins us now. It's funny, but it's funny sad because it is so embarrassing that the president of the United States has to be brought into check on such a grotesque level. Uh, but let's try to focus on some of the ones that matter. And thank you for being on as also, Daniel. Um, Trump said Portland has been burning for many years. Here's a little taste of his silliness. Or a city like Portland, where the, the entire city is ablaze all the time, and a mayor says, we don't want any help from the federal government. Portland's been burning for many years. For decades, it's been burning. And I think the people of Portland, and they're tired of it. They're tired of having, uh, of living with this curse. 
Now, curse, on fire for years. This is absurd. Is there anything that you can find in that other than some twisted metaphor that has any credulity? So the, the grain of truth here is that there have been ongoing nightly protests in Portland where there have regularly been fires set. But Trump turned those nightly fires into the entire city being ablaze all the time and then the entire city being ablaze for decades. That's not, not only not true, but so untrue that a spokesman for the Portland Fire Department, Portland Fire and Rescue, texted me after the briefing, after I reached out for comment, and said in all capital letters, we are not ablaze in Portland. And he explained that while there have been nightly fires, they've mostly been small, contained to trash bins or dumpsters. And he said none of them have required more than one fire engine to put out. So not dismissing the, the importance of fires being set. Of course, that's troubling, Chris, but the entire city being ablaze is pure nonsense. You know, and the, the, the irony is the truth would be a better story for this president. You know, just the pockets of violence are enough for him to spur the kind of fear that he wants to, especially when he's going to go there and foment it. Uh, one other one that I want to get to. He went on to talk about a plane loaded with thugs headed to the Republican convention. He actually repeated this claim today, but he went from going to the convention to the plane was leaving the convention. I want to play it. And in the plane, it was almost completely loaded with with thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that. This person was coming to the Republican National Convention and there were like seven people on the plane like this person, and then a lot of people were on the plane to do big damage. The entire plane filled up with the looters, the anarchists, the rioters, people that obviously were looking for trouble. This was a first-hand account of a plane going from Washington to wherever. First-hand account. President of the United States has access to the most complete information on just about every topic, but he's going with a first-hand account. Probably saw it on Twitter. Uh, This is fundamental to his fear campaign. They're coming to get you, Daniel. They're coming. Is there any truth to what you've been able to track down about what he was concerned about on these planes? Basically, Chris, no one knows anything. I don't like going out on any limbs, so I'll start by saying I can't definitively fact check this at this point. It is theoretically possible that at some point the president or someone else will come present actual evidence of a plane filled with thugs. But number one, Chris, this president has told so many lies and promoted so many nonsense conspiracy theories that I think we're in a place where we have to presume this is false until proven otherwise rather rather than the reverse. Number two, no one around him that we've talked to at CNN and other outlets has real corroborating information. Number three, his story, if you notice, there is already changing. It went from a plane to Washington to today, a plane from Washington to, quote, wherever. He didn't even specify the city. And number four, as reporter Ben Collins of NBC noted, this story is kind of suspiciously similar to a false but viral Facebook rumor that was going around a few months ago. So whether that's where he got it, I don't know, but similarities for sure. Daniel Dale, thank you very much. Your two things that we know. It is really uncommon around any big shot politician where his people don't know what he's talking about and can't back it up. I've almost never heard of it before. And second, it's going to be a real question for the voters. If you can't believe, if you assume that he's always lying and that's okay because politicians do it, well, what point is it too much? That's the question for the voters. Not for you, Daniel Dell. You bring us the facts. Thank you very much. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.